0: Ever since Christopher Columbus set sail to the New World for God, gold, and glory, America has been an essential component of the global project, combining Christianity with capitalism. Internationalism, globalism, once was the exclusive province of people who traveled, traditionally missionaries, statesmen, migrants, and religious pilgrims, more recently including tourists too. Today, globalism touches all of us, whether we travel or stay home, in everything from the products we buy, to the emails we send, to the social media we enjoy. Today's guest examined religious globalism, specifically Christian globalism, through the lens of specific charitable programs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Series on Ideas. I hope you'll subscribe to the series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Hilary Kale to the podcast today to discuss her new book, Christian Globalism at Home, Child Sponsorship in the United States. Hilary Kale is an Associate Professor of Anthropology and Religion at McGill University. She's the author of Walking Where Jesus Walked and the editor of Everyday Sacred. Hilary Kale, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure.
0: Hilary, I like to begin these interviews by asking authors, what do you think were the primary influences on your own intellectual development?
1: That's an interesting question. I suppose one way to answer that would be to talk about uh, my life as a whole. And one way would be to talk more specifically about my academic influences. And probably, as with anyone who's answering this question, probably both have something to do with it. So um, as a person, when I was growing up, we actually didn't do a lot of travel outside of uh, sort of my local area. And when I was a young um, person, so when I was in my 20s, I started traveling quite a lot and I even worked as a tour guide for a number of years. So I certainly had in my head this interest in thinking about how people relate to places and people and also ideas that they had not encountered before. Um, however, when I started graduate school, uh, a new set of influences was was, um, you know, had, had a role to play. And those influences really had to do with the environment in which I was studying. So my PhD was in a a disciplinary uh, or an interdisciplinary area called American studies. And in American studies, when I was doing my PhD, so this is the mid 2000s of uh, 2005 to 2010, there was a lot of discussion about what sometimes is called the US and the world. But essentially the United States and globalization and how we think about globalization, not only at the level of politics and um, larger nation state institutions, but also how we think about globalization at an everyday level. And that interest led me to my first project, which was about pilgrimage or tourism. And ultimately The first project about pilgrimage or tourism, which was about U.S. Christians who go to Israel, Palestine, who go to places like Jerusalem where where you are based um, and end up instantiating. So actually being present in a place that they've read about, that they've learned about often for decades from the time that they were young children um, before actually going there. But ultimately they do go there. And so that project was really ended up being about what it's like to be there after you've imagined a place Um, and what it's like to return home again and incorporate your memories of that place into your imaginative and in the case of the people who I was studying, your religious framework as these were Christian pilgrims. And with that study, I wanted to push the question a little bit further in my next study, so what really interested me was, if I'm still thinking about this question about people's relationship to um, places and people they've never met before, what about those people who never actually go to that place? They never actually make a trip, let's let's say, to the Holy Land as a pilgrim. And this particular project on child sponsorship, these NGOs, and I'll explain in a moment, Um, What that is. But this particular project allowed me to see the process of orienting oneself as a globally minded person without any travel um, necessarily being part of it at all. So I was able to really look at the production at home, the creation at home that people were um, incorporating into their everyday lives of trying to think and act globally, yet never with the capacity to instantiate that, to go to the place that they were imagining or to meet the people who they were trying to create a relationship with globally. So I would say those are kind of the influences, both personal but also academic, that brought me to this particular project as, as a second book project.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, uh, the news in recent years, has made us aware of Christian nationalism, but doesn't speak about Christian globalism. Is there something particular about Christian globalism? And why is globalism religiously desirable for Christians?
1: Well, so nationalism is certainly a word that maybe is more broadly known, or, or at least people assume that they understand what we mean by nationalism. So I must say that globalism is not really a word that a lot of people in everyday speech are using. I take the word globalism from anthropologists who have used that word in order to try to get at something that is a little different than globalization. So um, globalism is often used by scholars, myself included, to talk about both, Activities that are, so, you know, real life activities like, say, giving to a charity or um, engaging on social media or whatever the case may be, that create global links or global networks. And at the same time, that imaginative aspect where, where you're picturing yourself as interconnected more largely with the world as a whole. So, both the practical component and the imaginative component go into this term globalism. Um, and uh, in terms of how that functions as an aspect of Christianity, I would argue that it is utterly fundamental, um, even if maybe it doesn't make uh, news headlines in, in quite the same way, or anyway, the word is not being used, but it's utterly fundamental. I mean, at base, Christianity is a religion that understands human beings to have been um, created by a single entity, by a single creator. And that idea, the idea that the world has ultimately this single uh, beginning in this one creator and ultimately will have a single end in a final judgment. Although most of the people I, I worked with don't talk too much about a final judgment per se, but nevertheless, This idea, these two single events, creation and judgment, bookend Christian theology. And within that idea that everybody is created by this this one single entity is within Christianity also the notion that all people, um, due to the death of a particular Man, who is also uh, divine, Jesus, which is a name that probably even the non-Christians listening to this podcast have probably heard of Jesus before. So the idea that this single um, being, both man and God, Jesus, died on behalf of all human beings. um, So not just on behalf of those people who'd heard of him before, but actually already had linked all people within this story of redemption, All of that grounds Christianity in what I would call globalism. Um, However, in this book, the thing that really interested me was not simply to um, say uh, Christianity is naturally and forever oriented in this global fashion. So obviously, Christians must be globally oriented, obviously, because look at their theology. Instead, what I wanted to do was really unpack the process um, the everyday uh, techniques, as, as I call them in the book, bodily techniques that are often sensory in nature, um, participatory activities, all sorts of stuff that people on the ground are doing in order to repeat or reorient themselves um, over and over to this this globally-minded kind of framework. In other words, it's not natural for people. It's not natural for anybody, really, to think of oneself as connected to all these places and people and and even a single creator god. Um, But rather, this is an orientation that people are building. And they're building it over and over again. And in the book, I, I talk about it as wavering in intensity, that sometimes people feel very connected to people and places beyond their everyday. Um, And other times they really have to work quite hard in order to try to recreate that feeling. And so throughout the book, I'm really tracking a whole series of different kinds of activities, um, techniques that people are using, that US Christians specifically are using in order to um, uh, make themselves feel properly globally oriented um, uh, to their, you know, by their lights.
0: And you uh, focus in the book on uh, child sponsorship, that is um, a charitable donations and lots of other kinds of contact with a specific child in a faraway country uh, by Americans, that is the American donors and the children are somewhere else in the world. How did the notion of child sponsorship begin?
1: That's a great question. So um, I'll, I'll come back to these bodily techniques as well, um, maybe to give a few examples um, within the context of, of talking about where sponsorship comes from. So one of the things with sponsorship is that when I started the project, actually, I assumed that sponsorship was a 20th century invention, because that's how scholars had always talked about it before. They talked about sponsorship as popping up in World War I, which was really the beginning of an era of what we might think of as modern humanitarianism. And there was a particular organization, Save the Children Fund, that um, was using sponsorship, and it was assumed that it came out of that period. So World War I, uh, and it gets cemented in the 1920s as part of this new humanitarianism. And once I started digging, though, I realized that, in fact, this wasn't a mid-20th century story at all, but rather sponsorship dates back about 100 years from that 1920s moment. So in the United States, the first sponsorship programs, they're not called sponsorship. They're called, uh, they have different names, but they're often called adoption in earlier periods. Um, But they're not adoption the way we think of it today. It, It is actually sponsorship Um, so it dates back the first American programs to 1815, 1816. So, you know, a full century before the first world war. And it is started in missions, um, foreign missions. In fact, in the United States, the first foreign missions that are being sent out from the United States. And they're going to India and to Sri Lanka, which is where they initially start these programs. Um, That said, once I started pulling on the historical threads, I found that sponsorship did not only, although it, it began at a more institutional level in the 19th century, but it did not only come from the 19th century. It actually went back another century before that as Christian fundraisers around the turn of the 18th century. So we're talking sort of the 1700s, early 1700s. As Christian fundraisers were Um, experimenting with new forms of fundraising. They were trying to figure out how can we interest living donors, so not just people who are dying and leaving bequests, and not just the extremely wealthy, but how can we interest living donors and more people from different strata of society? Um, Sometimes they called them the quote-unquote middling classes. So not just the wealthy, but all of these Um, middling classes, uh, as the middle classes are sort of becoming a more important factor, how can we interest these people in giving charity, in supporting organizations that are doing Christian work, right? These are are Christian uh, charitable bodies. And so what they do is actually take a series of techniques from nascent capitalism. So they look at capitalist corporations that have shareholding programs where you have A whole bunch of people who maybe don't have so much money, each one of them, but they're giving small amounts of money in order to buy shares within a corporation. And then that corporation is, you know, going off and colonizing, uh, you know, India or Indonesia or whatever it's doing. And then you get a share of the profits if there are profits. So they took this idea of dividing up um, a charitable project essentially into these small units, these small components. Um, And that meant that people who before this had not been supporting charity were able to do so. And that included women who often um, did not have a lot of ready money or ready cash. It included poor people as well. So middle class people as well as, as poor people. And so that idea that you could give a little bit of money and more specifically, and this differed from the capitalist corporations, more specifically, you could give a little bit of money on a regular basis. So every month, for example, or every couple months, you would give always the same amount of money. So you'd know exactly how much to set aside each month, a couple pennies, for example, that that idea then informed child sponsorship. So they're taking this idea, you set aside a little bit of money, and you pay your couple pennies each month. um, And initially, child sponsorship was generally done by groups. So you'd have a group of women or a group of young ladies who would each set aside their couple pennies every month and then they would use that money in order to every month support an individual abroad. And the reason why it was child sponsorship, um, there there are a few reasons for that, but but one of the main reasons for that is that there was this idea that in order to have women and youth, um, uh, you know, young people, including children who were under the um, tutelage of women at, say, a Sunday school or something like that. In order to get them interested in global projects that otherwise would seem very abstract, you needed to give them some kind of um, object, is is how they they talked about it at the time, a special object. Um, So, in other words, a single child and it was believed that if, that women and children would be much more interested in supporting other women and children abroad so these ideas came together in the early 19th century we want to get women involved we want to get children involved they can't understand the abstract nature of global responsibility and the abstract nature of a christian's responsibility to all due to their single creator so We will give them a special object, a single child. They will focus on that using this technique of giving a set amount of money each month. Um, You know, uh, at the time it was about $25 a year, and that would be divided up into equal payments every month. Um, And so all of this created child sponsorship. That's where it comes from. But the techniques that I was talking about earlier are not only... Um, although they include, but are not only the techniques related to putting aside your pennies and bringing that money in and donating that money, but rather child sponsorship ever since the start of sponsorship has incorporated all sorts of other aspects um, in the process of supporting that child and moreover thinking of yourself as globally connected. So one of the examples I really like is hymn singing that from the start of of child sponsorship, the women and, and, or sometimes there were men too, but the people involved uh, would um, often sign up for times when they would pray together or they would sing hymns together. And these were times that other people in other churches around the world, uh, granted at this point it was mainly in England, uh, Scotland, and North America, but nevertheless, they talked about it as the world as a whole. So other people in the world would sign up for the same time. And you would sing together in your congregation or in your child sponsorship group. And you would imagine yourself to be singing the same words at the same of the same hymn at the same time as all of these other people elsewhere in the world. And the reason that I like that example, and so this is what one of the examples I would call a bodily technique, this kind of singing together and then through that imagining yourself as interconnected to other people singing at the same time. The reason I like this example is that it dates back to the beginning of child sponsorship and even before that. And today as well, we see this uh, usually today using technology um, where, you know, people will hymns sing in different places and then all of these people singing will record themselves and it'll all be spliced together so you you get what are sometimes called international choirs and you can watch all these people on YouTube for example singing at the same time in their various locations and when those are Christian people singing a Christian hymn then that is supposed to provide a sense of uplift and connectedness and that oneness that comes from the Christian ideal of this single Creator and the connection of all people in the world.
0: Yes, that that is a lovely image, uh, at for a project whose fundamental origin um, was for fundraising, as you point out. Um, and an argument has been made that the uh, The process of donating remotely uh, sometimes serves to distract a donor from their local needs. Uh, Let's say the hungry child in Appalachia, uh, who is likely to be white like the donors and probably Christian, uh, lacks the exotic appeal of a hungry non-Christian, non-white African or Asian child what do you say to those who put that argument forward?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting argument. I don't really think that bears out in anything that I've um, that I've encountered. So there are different periods I should say obviously sponsorship runs throughout 200 years. Um, so there's different periods. Um, so first of all, Appalachia is an, is an interesting example because in fact that is where a lot of sponsorship, Domestic sponsorship actually has taken place specifically um, Save the Children Fund that I was mentioning before that starts um, child sponsorship in the 1920s um, in its American form is working specifically in the Appalachian region. So in fact, in the 1920s and 1930s, um, sponsorship As I said, it has these various periods. So in the 1920s and 1930s, sponsorship actually is mainly of white children. It's of European children after the war or or with a few exceptions, like, for example, children in Appalachia um, in the United States. Um, and so these are not children who are considered non-Christians, although they might be children who are, for example, Catholics. You might be a Protestant and you might be supporting Catholics. Um, so, so there could be some some interfaith or kind of ecumenical support. Um, but these these are not uh, children who are the kind of children that we might picture today as the prototypical um, sponsored child. Uh, in the next. Phase of sponsorship. So in the 1950s, 1960s, just after the first, sorry, just after the Second World War, um, sponsorship is really strongly correlated to support of children in Asia specifically. And again, I mean, with sponsorship, you can often put your finger on places where the United States is involved in either missionary or military endeavors. And those tend to be the places where people are interested in sponsoring Um, because those are the places that are in the news. Those are the places people are thinking about. So uh, Korea in the 1950s, Vietnam in the 1960s, um, but it spreads to a variety of countries across Asia in that period. And it's really in the 1970s that uh, sponsorship moves more firmly into Latin America and into Africa as well. Um, And Part of what you mentioned was the lure or the, the interest in supporting a child who's not Christian. Um, but in fact, that really has not been the draw for sponsorship most of the time. Now, it's not to say that the people with whom I worked in the contemporary period or the people about whom I read in the historical period wouldn't have been Quite happy to support a non-Christian child. There's some interest there, right? Maybe I could, um, you know, help them to. I'm speaking as a sponsor right now, a Christian sponsor. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I could help them, um, you know, to uh, know about Jesus's love or Jesus's grace. Right, would be the way that they might think about it. But in fact, most of the time, the children who are being supported, certainly up until the 1980s, so from you know, the 1810s through the 1980s, the children who are being supported are living in uh, missionary stations or in orphanages run by missionaries. So these children are often from Christian families already or are have already been introduced to Christianity. And, so, and sponsors are aware of that and, and view this as very positive. They view themselves as helping missionaries in that respect. And in... Helping to um, shape or sort of um, help the child mature in their Christian faith. But not, they don't view themselves as suddenly introducing Christianity to a child who is not already Christian or who is not in the process of becoming Christian. That's what they kind of envision um, that these are children who are already under the guidance of Christian missionaries or who come from Christian families. And today, um, even in organizations like, say, World Vision, that explicitly says that they are um, non-discriminatory in terms of their policies for who they help. So, in other words, they would be just as likely to help a Muslim child as a Christian child, for example, or a Hindu child. Even in organizations like World Vision, the people who I got to know, um, so these are, again, U.S. Christians... Always pictured the child as being a Christian. And, and generally today, um, from a Christian family, they assumed that the child already came from a Christian family. Um, and they had good reasons for making those assumptions. Uh, they assumed that a family that was not Christian would not want the child to participate. Um, and whether that's true on the ground, I'm not making any kind of assumptions, but rather, this is the way that, that sponsors often told me. Um, about why they assumed the child was Christian. Um, So they assumed the family must be Christian. Otherwise, why would the child participate? And also the child would often use very Christian expressions in their letters because that's one thing about child sponsorship ever since the start. So for 200 years, child sponsorship has always encouraged communication, some level of communication. So through letters mainly. Um, although more recently also through photographs and even through internal email systems. Um, But so the child will often use Christian expressions. um, And sometimes that's because within the environment where the child is writing those letters, uh, you know, people are offering them Christian expressions and they're incorporating it into the letter. Sometimes those Christian expressions maybe come through the translator who's looking at the, the letter or oftentimes the child actually is Christian. that The sponsor is correct in that respect. So I found that sponsors, even when I was looking at the information about the child and I myself could see that this child, for example, based on their name and their region was almost certainly a Muslim. Nevertheless, the sponsor would always assume that the child was probably from a Christian family. So, so that's a bit of a long way of, of answering your question. Um, But I'll just say um, also that a misconception is that sponsoring abroad takes people's um, focus away from domestic charity. As I said, that is not something that I saw play out, um, that in fact, the people with whom I worked, uh, both historically and today, tend to be very committed to a variety of charitable projects often more committed, in fact, to what we might think of as domestic projects, so things through their own church, in their own community. Um, And then it's actually the globally oriented project of sponsorship that is a bit of a harder sell, you might say. Because again, it's not so natural to try to turn your your, um, orientation towards feeling a relationship, which is what sponsorship claims you will feel, feeling a relationship towards people you've never met, a place you're never going to go. So in fact, if anything, I would say sponsors would tell me that the the challenge was to continue to feel really connected to this global orientation and to continue sponsoring month after month rather than focusing only on the domestic projects where you can see right in front of you changes that are happening, um, etc.,
0: Although the focus of your research and your book is on the impact of sponsorship on the, on the donor, on the donor's global orientation, uh, what do studies tell us about sponsorship's impact on the recipients, on the children? Yeah,
1: so this really wasn't something that I um, looked at. I wasn't studying impact on the children themselves, um, although certainly in the archive and also when I was sitting at, with sponsors in their living rooms and their kitchen tables, and you know we were going through their letters. So I mean, over the course of the uh, six seven years that I was that I was researching this book, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of child letters. Um, it is a little bit hard to say because. Um, you know, those letters are redacted. Those letters are also written by children who um, are, you know, being, I don't want to say coached, but they're certainly being helped to understand the situation in a certain kind of way. Um, and at the same time, obviously and understandably, um, you know, their communities, uh, their, their parents, etc. are aware that you need to keep donors engaged Um, in order to make sure that the money keeps coming, right? So, I mean, looking at the items that children produce about these relationships is not always the best gauge. Um, Child sponsorship organizations themselves have often done a fair amount of research in the field. In fact, they are much more interested. They do almost no research on sponsors. They're not especially interested in whether sponsors are um you know creating a global orientation or whether sponsors themselves are feeling uplifted through these activities in other words the kinds of questions i was interested in rather sponsorship organizations are very interested as are any ngo in what they might call their impacts in the field so they are doing a lot of studies of the children at any given time um, in order to see whether the children are, who are sponsored have different kinds of outcomes? Um, are they staying in school longer? Um, are they uh, more likely to delay marriage and pregnancy? Are they more likely to get certain kinds of jobs? Um, are they more likely, and this is a big one, um, especially uh, for one organization I worked with, Compassion, but I would argue it's a big one for all of them, are the children more likely to be able to articulate aspirations for their future that are sort of bigger aspirations than what you might articulate if you are in dire poverty. So in other words, can they, do the children develop a future oriented kind of outlook? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it would seem from the data being collected by these organizations that sponsorship does have some kind of an impact. Now, I mean, there are, you know, I, I am loath to really weigh in on this because there, there's obviously a lot of questions about whether people are self-selecting in terms of who signs their kid up for sponsorship and which kid they sign up for sponsorship. So do you sign up your kid who is the most likely to succeed? Um, and therefore, when the organization looks at the different impacts on a sponsored child versus their siblings, well, no wonder the sponsor child did better because the children, or sorry, the parents chose the child they thought would do better initially. Um, you know, so so it's quite hard to say. And there have also been anthropological studies of um, child sponsorship going back even to the 1990s that have talked about how sponsorship can also really aggravate tensions within families, tensions within communities. Um, because there is money flowing towards a particular child or a particular family. And um, in order to try to mitigate that, uh, most organizations today, um, although there might be um, some support for an individual child, there is also some attempt to offer. And in some cases, uh, it's entirely community-driven, but even in the ones that, that do offer support for single children, they also... Uh, try at the community level to offer some kind of community uh, programs as well in order that the community benefits as a whole and to try to mitigate um, you know, factors such as uh, jealousy, accusations of witchcraft, um, uh, problems within, within one's family, etc., due to the largesse that is going towards a, a, you know, a single child through these
0: programs.
1: Um, yes, and and, and of that's course that's a contemporary. That's I'm speaking about the contemporary period now. I,
0: yeah, I I just want to point out that any impact uh, study done by an organization who has a financial benefit from the program is uh, let's say something that academics should view with uh, with some skepticism. Um,
1: yes, yeah. So yeah. actually, I mean, so compassion, which I was just talking about, which is an... Uh, an evangelical organization. They did work with um, outside researchers in order to have those outside researchers evaluate their projects. Um, this was about, uh, I guess, now going back about a decade um, was when the, the the research took place, um, and and so that was something that Compassion really um, touted as, and rightly so, that that this was something that. Um, you know, it was quite unprecedented in the sense that they gave outside researchers access to their field sites, access to their personnel in order to conduct an independent study. Um, so, I mean, you know, there have been some attempts, but as I said, I think the track record is really, really mixed um, in terms of uh, impacts on the ground and. And my own study did not evaluate that, uh, those impacts on the ground. Um, I did, however, within my study, try to incorporate, um, at least here and there, the voices of children to some degree. Um, So... Uh, for example, we have a lot of letters from children from the 1950s. Um, that's a period where there's, there's a lot of archival material that have been kept at these organizations, often archival material that nobody really knows about. No one's looked at it before, but there's a lot of examples of letters. I tried to show in the book Um, both how those letters were being constructed, um, how they were being also shaped and redacted by the organizations themselves, and also moments when the children's voices broke through a little and the children were saying things. um, Like, for example, uh, one thing that I discuss is how there was this concern about materialism, this concern that these children... Uh, not seem to be asking for money but or, and for things, but that these children were really talking more at the level of that uh, sort of oneness, right, about um, the idea of connectedness, the idea of creating a bond, love, and relationship with those sponsors, that the children should talk about their prayers for the sponsors, that the children should talk about God, but not that the children should talk about money and things, even though in the 1950s that was everywhere in these letters because the children, in fact, had to always write down exactly what items they'd received from the sponsor so that the sponsor, at the time, sponsors were sending objects, not just money, so that the sponsor could see that the objects had arrived and that the child had really received them. So, you know, I, I point out, for example, one little girl who I have many letters from her because her sponsor kept them in a scrapbook, how she talks about how much she loves the stuff. She loves the doll, she loves the alarm clock she got that she lords it over some of the other children around her and won't let them play with her stuff and that they do the same thing with her. So you know these are like the petty squabbles of 7-year-olds but who are getting this these objects that they love the stuff from the these American sponsors. So you know I try to also show that the children do have their own agency here and they do have their own voices but certainly those are hard to to pick out and showing how the letters are constructed is one way that we can at least recognize the way that these children's voices are being, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of used in these contexts, uh, even if we can't necessarily always hear what the children are saying as a result.
0: I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the 1950s, uh, because, uh, it's quite an historical irony that uh, back then, when white mainstream American Christians were promoting the image of happy diversity through uh, sponsorship programs, at the same time, segregation and discrimination were still the law of the land back home in the USA. Uh, how, how did or did the organizations manage that contradiction?
1: yeah, that's an excellent question. And in the book, I do I mention that, and I and I kind of have to throw my hands up a little bit because the fact of the matter is that even when sponsors write pointed letters to the organizations asking them whether they support segregation, these organizations um, really uh, dodge those letters. They respond, and they really don't um, want to engage the issue. The same thing, World Vision, for example, has its own magazine, and it isn't until the mid-1960s that they even print any letters about the civil rights movement, And then it creates such a hullabaloo, all of these sponsors, because the sponsors are really divided. You know, white Southern sponsors really do not support civil rights. Other sponsors do, perhaps, you know, support civil rights. So, you know, sponsors are writing in and they're pro or against segregation. And World Vision just has to shut down the conversation. So these um, organizations in this period in the 1950s and 1960s really um, try as much as possible, whatever the, the view of their own founders and their their own staff, which tends to be um, anti-segregation and pro-civil rights, but whatever... To, anyway, it's a bit complicated, but whatever the view of their own staff and, and their own leadership is, they really want to dodge these domestic issues and they still... Um, Organizations that are interested in raising charitable funds or raising any funds from the widest possible catchment of people try not to engage in hot political issues because that's very possibly going to alienate part of their market. And the thing about these sponsorship organizations in this period of the 50s and 60s is that one of Um, And this this is a little bit uh, maybe insider baseball for people who are interested in the history of Christianity in the States. But one of the major things that these organizations are innovating in this period is moving away from the old missionary model. Because remember, sponsorship starts in missions and it runs in missions until about the First World War. Those missions are divided by church. So if you are a presbyterian you're supporting the presbyterian missions. If you are a methodist you're supporting the methodist missions, etc. And these missionaries they don't or they try not to fundraise in each other's turfs. But the big thing about these organizations like Christian Children's Fund, World Vision that that arise out of the 1930s, 40s and 50s and are enormously successful, much larger than the missionary organizations is that these new kind of organizations are NGOs. And in in the language of of historians of Christianity, they're parachurch organizations. So they are explicitly trying to draw draw Christians from across the spectrum. They don't care what church you go to. They don't care what your politics are. They are going to try to get you on board as a sponsor. All the Christians, potentially, across all of the United States. Um, And this is really new. And this is enormously successful as a fundraising technique. Um, it also causes a lot of controversy at, a, at an intra-Christian level. The missionary boards are really upset about this, as you can imagine. Um, sure. They view these as interlopers in their territory. <laughs> it's very successful. And as a result, as I said, um, you know, part of that is not getting into theological issues, so, stay away from theology, almost as controversial as politics, if not more so. Stay away from theological differences. Talk about God as a whole. Talk about God's love as a whole, and stay away from political issues. So, talk about, um, you know, that that term "happy diversity" that you used, which I use in the book, which actually comes from um, a more contemporary feminist theorist. It's not uh, terminology that the organizations used, but talk about. Um, you know, this diversity under God's creation of all these children elsewhere. Um, and and as I note in the book, in this period, um, the kind of happy diversity imagery that these organizations are using that is so successful is not simply, um, I mean, it is also, but it's not only the kind of imagery that we see in the same period in say the United Nations um, or the Olympics, um, where you see, you know, People with different skin tones and different um, costumes parading around together or children who are um, indexed as as from different, in the, the parlance of the time, nations because of their skin color, because of their clothing, um, sitting around together reading the UN Declaration of Human Rights and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, these organizations use that imagery, but they superimpose on that imagery as well, specifically a Christian orientation. So you see those children praying together. Um, uh, again, indexed as from different nations all around the world, um, due to their skin color um, as well as their um, as well as their dress. So praying together, or dancing around a Christmas tree together, or whatever whatever the case may be, and. And as I point out in the book, what's important is that these children are doing actions that are legible to U.S. Christians as Christian actions. So this allows Christians to see in the imagery that's being presented to them what they understand to be a representation of God's um, capacity to be immense, God's capacity to contain all these different kinds of people and to bring them into prayer together to bring them into celebrating Christmas together, um, etc. cetera.
0: Uh, it would seem natural, since some of the children who are sponsored are not living in families but rather in orphanages, it would seem natural for sponsor agencies to promote international adoption. And I learned from your book that for a time they did. Why did it stop?
1: Yes, yeah, so we're still talking about that period of the '50s and '60s. So in the 1950s, there was, and and a little bit before that, in the in the 20s and 30s, there was this moment that child sponsorship organizations were working alongside Christian adoption agencies in order to actually legally adopt, so bring some of these children over um, and have them uh, be incorporated into Christian families. Um, and some of those adoption agencies like Holt, for example, still exist um, that were initially supported by World Vision and really almost um, uh, sort of uh, initially got their start, essentially attached to World Vision. But you're right that there is this um, this split that happens. And child sponsorship organizations start um, viewing uh, international adoption itself as really Um, beyond or uh, separate from what they're trying to do. It's taking a lot of resources legally. um, Legally, it's very hard to do because there are quotas in place um, in the United States in this period, really up until the mid-1960s. I mean, there are still, um, obviously, you know, there's still lots of legal strictures in terms of who's allowed to enter the United States. Um, But until the mid-1960s, there are a series of laws That limit specifically the number of non-white people who can enter the United States. And so the amount of legal paperwork that you need to get through in order to adopt a foreign child from Asia, for example, and bring it over here is really quite enormous. Um, And ultimately, child sponsorship organizations, they are doing so well with sponsorship in the 50s and 60s. I mean, it is growing by leaps and bounds. Um, You know, they're sponsoring not just hundreds of children. If we think about the missionary organizations in the 19th century sponsoring, say, hundreds of children, they're sponsoring tens of thousands of children by the early 1960s. So they decide to put their eggs in that basket. Um, They don't want to be dealing with the legal rigmarole, as well as the financial burden of trying to organize adoptions, legal adoptions, which nevertheless, or or regardless anyway, were always a very small uh, side piece to what they were actually doing in the field to support these missionary orphanages through sponsorship in this period.
0: So it was a practical decision, not a philosophical or... Principle decision? No, no, yeah. it
1: was absolutely practical in nature. Right. Um, you know, they they wished the adoption organizations well, <laughs> essentially, um, and and parted ways.
0: Uh, well, let's I fast. Should, oh, sorry. I should Go just ahead. say
1: sorry, Renee. Just to note, though, I am talking about the fifties and sixties right now. And if you were to talk today to Um, You know, people who are involved at the organizations I studied in child sponsorship, they would argue that they have actually a philosophical um, uh, objection to the idea of uprooting a child from their country and bringing them over here for international adoption. Or they they might argue that. So um, certainly I want to make clear that we've just been talking about the 50s and 60s and these organizations look really different today in terms of how they think about these children and their families.
0: Uh, well let's fast forward a little bit to to the 21st century and the impact of the internet on sponsorship. So talk about that a bit.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one actually. I mean um so sponsors have always complained. I mean we have letters like I I love these letters going back to the 1820s with sponsors just complaining that they're not getting enough letters, they're not getting enough information right these letters and later, Um, in the 20th century, photographs are incredibly important because, again, I mean, sponsorship is linked to this idea that through God's love that courses through every human being and every human body, you can create uh, a really tangible relationship to another individual, and you can do so both because God connects you through his love, um, and this is, you know, sponsorship language, And also through these various techniques that I mentioned earlier, things like if you're hymn singing at the same time, um, you know, or if you're, uh, there's a lot of fasting and feasting. So eating certain kinds of food that you understand your body to be feeling, um, you know, the the feel of the slippery noodles that you're eating, for example, um, that is a food that you don't normally eat. But feeling those slippery noodles makes you feel like bodily you are connecting to this child abroad. Or in the 1970s, not eating. So you feel hunger pangs, the way that you feel bodily, this child must be feeling. So there's all these ways that people are trying at a bodily level to feel this sense of connection. Um, and a big part of being able to picture at a more imaginative level the connection is through these letters. The letters provide also for Christians really important fodder for prayer. Because that has always been a key component of sponsorship is um, what uh, a type of prayer that was really being invented right as sponsorship was being invented, um, which is uh, the uh, specific prayer. So a prayer for a specific individual, a prayer for a specific need, not just a prayer where you repeat uh, memorized words, but a prayer that is uh, you know, in in the context of Protestant Christianity, understood to come from your heart and be about the needs for a specific individual. In order to pray like that to God for a specific individual and for their specific needs, you need letters, you need information, you need something to go on. So all this to say, right from the start, Christian sponsors have been very, um, very focused on getting that communication. And so the internet, um, one would assume, would be a very popular idea with sponsors because of course it means more information. It means more information quicker. It means that you can actually key your prayers more in real time, right? Um, You know, you can, you can hear from the child and imagine what they really need or imagine what they're going through right at that moment. So sponsors are very keen overall um, on the internet. However, Organizations themselves are very concerned about the internet. Um, they're very concerned about the any kinds of links that sponsors and children make outside of the organization itself. So one thing that those, those organizations in the 50s and 60s, like World Vision and Christian Children's Fund did, was not only um, attract Christians from across the spectrum, not only Uh, ramp up really quickly to support tens of thousands of children, but they also created massive bureaucratic infrastructures, things that had not existed when missionaries were doing this kind of work. And in fact, missionaries constantly complained that sponsors had altogether too much control because they were writing, you know, they were choosing who they wanted to sponsor and they were writing personally to, you know, this missionary when that missionary was trying to to, uh, sort of control where the letters went. So these organizations was, in the 50s... Oh, sorry. Sorry,
0: what, why Why was it so important to the agencies to control the relationship between sponsor and recipient?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there was always... So in the 19th century, there was always this concern. This is this control issue. There's always this concern that if sponsors have too much power um, or, or too much communication, they will, A, um, be able to dictate where the money goes, Sponsorship Mm -hmm. organizations wanted sponsors to feel a sense of empowerment and some sense that they were dictating where the money goes and some sense of trust that the money was being used as it was said to be used. But they also still wanted control to be able to decide, well, we need more money in this area versus that area. They didn't want sponsors to just be able to make all the decisions because, of course, sponsors were not in the field. They didn't know that Uh, an earthquake in place x needed an influx of money right now sponsors also didn't want their money going towards boring things they didn't want their money going towards things like in the 19th century they would say you know boxes and twine and things like that they wanted their money to go towards the children themselves the children's education the children's clothing things like that but the last reason and all of this We can keep in mind from the 50s and 60s. The last reason was a concern that sponsors would um, become disillusioned if they learned too much about these children in uh, the 19th century parlance. And so picture me doing air quotes here that the children Mm -hmm. often returned into air quotes heathendom. So in other words, the children did not become Christians. They usually went back to their families. Um, The children sometimes died. This is the 19th century, but in fact, not just sometimes, but often. Often died because they were malnourished when they arrived at the mission um, for a variety of reasons. Um, And so this concern carried over into the mid-20th century. And um, children dying also, these were children who were from war-torn places, Um, also children suddenly disappearing. Their family member would come and find them and then pull them out of the orphanage, and that was that. So here was a sponsor being told that they had a relationship with this child, that God's love was connecting them and flowing through them, and then suddenly the child was gone. Um, Organizations were really worried that too much information could um, create a sense of disillusionment, that sponsors would basically sign off and say, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, Sure. Move on
0: to a different charity. Yeah,
1: move on to a different charity, perhaps a domestic (laughs) charity, for example, where they felt like they could really watch their money at work, um, you know, in a different kind of way. So this question about trust in these organizations and this very careful dance between um, offering sponsors control um, over their money and over... Uh, an ability to track how their money is being used through the life of this single child. And at the same time, um, the kind of gaps and miscommunications, time lags that are constitutive, I argue in the book of global projects, that it's not simply the lack of communication, but rather um, any global project is going to have these gaps and miscommunications and time lags And in fact, for the sponsorship organizations themselves, creating a certain amount of, of, I wouldn't say miscommunication, but re-communication maybe, or certainly making sure that that, um, all letters go through their central offices and are being vetted, et cetera, that that um, is a really important part of how they construct and maintain control um, over these relationships. And at the same time, try to create a sense for the sponsor and to some degree for the child that these are unmediated relationships, that the relationships are really um, uh, one-to-one, that the relationships are really real, we might say, rather than mediated by the organization. So all this to say that's a long way of talking about the internet, but that the internet is both posing problems for these organizations and they are trying to develop their own internal systems of um, doing email and things like that where they will still have some control over what's being sent um, and yet can still create this unmediated experience. And at the same time, um, you know, the writing is kind of on the wall, I would say, that sponsors increasingly are in fact, communicating with children um, through their own devices, Facebook, especially. And this will be more and more as more sponsors, are on social media, and more particularly as more children in these very poor communities elsewhere start having access, particularly to cellular phones, um, that will have some kind of ability to access the internet um, and things like Facebook.
0: Finally, Hillary, um, tell us about how your research findings in this study fit into the current ideas of globalization theory more generally.
1: Well, globalization theory is certainly a big category, right? Because scholars across a variety of different disciplines, obviously, have written about globalization. But certainly one idea, and I've mentioned this before um, in our talk today, um, but one idea that I really want to um, certainly nuance uh, in this book is the idea that... Christianity is sort of naturally global, that it has this globalizing theology, and therefore Christians are automatically oriented towards thinking about the global church, uh, uh, naturally oriented towards understanding God as the creator of everyone. Um, And partly what happens is in projects on globalization where you are tallying, for example, the amount of money. That has been sent abroad uh, by, say, U.S. Christians, or you are looking at the um, the projects, say, even child sponsorship. You're looking at the projects that already exist and are evaluating those projects abroad. Um, partly, what ends up happening is it's kind of like looking in the rearview mirror that you are, and and so scholars are focusing on the projects as already pre-existing entities, or they're focusing on you know, where the money's going and how the money's being used. And obviously, that's important. But what they're not asking is, so what if we backtrack and look not just in the rearview mirror at the results of global giving or, you know, US Christians, uh, global networks, but look at how these things are being created, both at an institutional level. So organizations such as you know, charitable um, NGOs like these child sponsorship organizations. But also my interest is always getting boots on the ground, trying to think about how is it actually being these global orientations being created through these processes, these bodily techniques, these sensory experiences, these communication experiences that people are um, using on an ongoing basis, not every single day, um, but are having to... um, Sort of, uh, you know, revisit on a regular basis through the hymns they're singing, through the the activities that they're participating in, through the letters that they receive, through the news media that they're consuming. So, how is all of this happening on a regular basis in order to create these periods of heightened intensity where you do feel this sense of global connection that keeps you giving that? Uh, keeps you feeling like your God is indeed the creator of all, and that you have a connection through your love, through your feelings, um, you know, your your uh, sort of physical feelings within your own body as well as your, your feelings of empathy towards others, etc. So really that I would say that focus on the process of making and remaking this global orientation at a personal level and also at an institutional level in these, um, in these parachurch organizations, that's really where this book makes uh, an intervention um, and I think is a really good complement to studies that are looking more broadly at this idea of, quote unquote, Christian globalization or just globalization as a whole.
0: Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, before I let you go, tell us what you're working on now. Well, this may
1: seem like a project that has absolutely nothing to do, frankly, with child sponsorship. There is actually a link, um, a couple links, um, but the project that I'm working on right now is actually about hurricanes. um, And so it takes place in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And what I'm doing is, uh, or what I'm going to try to do, I'm really just at the beginning right now, but is to track the way that um, people who live in that area um, think about themselves as connected to a very broad ecology an ecology that includes um, other people that includes land and includes other living creatures like plants and animals, but also the spirits and how that is uh, uh, rerouted or reoriented in the context of these regular storms that come through this, Region that are these um, uh, barrier islands off the coast of North Carolina. And that might seem like it has very little to do with the project that I just completed. However, one of the through lines is this question about the connection between U.S. Christians and the rest of the world. So trying to think, um, as I said in my first project on pilgrimage or tourism to Israel-Palestine, I was trying to think through What's it like to imagine a place for decades and then to finally instantiate it to go there? In my second project, the one we've just been talking about, I was trying to think about what's it like to try to get yourself globally oriented, even when you never actually go abroad or certainly anyway, not to the particular place or to meet the particular child who you're trying to feel this sense of connection with. And in this Last project, I'm I'm sort of extrapolating even a step further, and I'm trying to think. Well, what about weather patterns? Weather patterns are this global force that that hurricanes. You know, they get started in Africa, they move across the Atlantic. They are no respecter of state boundaries, so they're they're traveling across the Caribbean and Mexico and up through the United States. And um, how can we think about? connections outside of the United States differently if we actually take weather, if we take the wind and these hurricanes as our starting point. So there is, in fact, a connection, although perhaps not a connection that's immediately evident. Uh, but that is the project that I am working on now.
0: And it sounds very interesting to me. I love weather. I think it's a very interesting topic. <laughs> and, and the Outer Banks are an absolutely charming part of the United States, both culturally as well as physically. So I wish you a lot of good luck with that project. And thank you very much for being on the show today.
1: Thanks so much, Renee. I really appreciate your taking the time to chat with me.
0: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye, Hillary.
1: Bye, Renee.